I had a sorcerer, Chaya Vishka Basar and Yoa Parshish here for Tafshin Pedalad and Parshas Kisisa. Thank you to Shifi Jubis. Is Shifi here? Not now or not yet. Um, in loving memory of her husband Harry and her mother Belle Weinstock. Amir Tashem Nenashavos should have Aliot. Um, I don't recall when their yard sites are, but uh, thank you to Shifi for sponsoring in their honor. Okay, we are on page 484, 484, uh, I think last week was 464, so 484, let's see, 484 is Taf Pei Dalit, Taf Pei Dalit, Fidus, Fidus, as we've talked about in the past, without a love, is a reference to uh, sort of the, the redemption of, of the Jewish people, Pei Dalit, Taf, so there you go, Fidus. Not really sure what that has to do with Kisisa. I guess they need some redeeming after the eagle has off. How about that? Okay. Parsha Kisisa starts in an unexpected way. People know Parsha Kisisa because of the eagle has off, but there's a lot of stuff before that. A lot of stuff that comes up, which is, uh, which is really more relevant to what we've been talking about, which is the Mishkan. So Parsha Kisisa starts off, Kisisa is Rosh B'nei Yisrael of Kudahem. That when you come to sort of I guess, take stock of the Jewish people in a numerical way. You want to know how many people are there? This is, again, page 484, Perak Lamed, Pasuk Yud Beis, 3012. You want to know how many people are there in the Jewish people right now? So you should not count them one by one. Instead, Nasnu Ishkofer Nafsho, a person should give the, the amount, sort of, some kind of what we call the Machzis HaShekel, which is in the, the next Pasuk, in Yud Gimel. I don't know if people know the the, the, the special quality about the word vinasnu. Vinasnu, forwards and backwards, is a palindrome, as we say it in English. I don't know if there's a Hebrew word for that. Palindroma, I don't know. Um, how do you say palindrome in Hebrew? We'll ask the Israelis sometime. But uh, vinasnu, the Vilna Goan, I believe, on this, parsha, on this Pasuk says that uh, the, the, the significance of contributing to a worthwhile purpose is like the Mishkan, the Mahzah Shekha went towards, towards the, the carbon Tamid, is that the, the, as much as you give, that's how much you get back, right? That's how sort of you, you feel satisfied when you give to an important, uh, an important endeavor like the carbon Tamid. So that's where Vinasnu, backwards and forwards, give, give back, fine. So each call for Nafsha, this, this is one of the sources for not being, not being allowed to, or at least this is one of the uh, expressions, I'm not sure this is the source, because this is not really an instruction as much as it is, this is what you shall do, not to say that it's prohibited to do otherwise, but that, that seems to be why it is, because the Pesach then says, Always oh, a tricky thing, sort of as, sort of halachically, halachic methodologically, um, that when you see the Pesach say, you'll be punished for doing the wrong thing, does that mean that it's a prohibition, or that's just a natural consequence of things? You know, don't kill, because then... You know, that person will be dead. Well, but don't kill because it's also prohibited to kill, right? Um, I, I, well, just using that example, I've quoted from the Kutzke Rebbe that there's a story when someone overheard him, you know, learning the Parsha, and it says, Lo Sirtzach, and he translated that to be, Lo Tiherotzeach, right? In, beyond the literal aspect of killing, there's also the fact that you'll be, you'd be a killer, right? So there are intrinsic values, and then there are pra- pragmatic values, uh, meaning that in this case, you will, uh, you will bring upon yourself a negev, which is a plague. You'll bring upon yourself a plague if you do count people without have them giving money. 
Now, it's, again, it's unclear from the Pasuk because this is trying to establish a prohibition, but we certainly see from here that there's something wrong with counting people directly, and instead you should use some other mechanism. This is what we do today, or at least uh, some people do today. They use what? What do people use to count? Psukim. We use psukim. Have you ever heard the not one, not two? Not one, not two, not three. I thought, I thought it was that, that was a little weird because you're just saying the word not, but you're still counting. You're using numbers. Anyways, so some people say, some people say you should use the word for the sake of a minion, at least that has 10, that has 10 words in it. So you'll know you have 10 people for a minion. The other option, anyone know the other option? Volkswagen. <laughs> what? There are 10 letters in Volkswagen. <laughs> are there? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. What did you say? Oh, that also, that's a whole, that's a whole pasta, that's a whole part bracha, you don't want to say that. Um, but um, the other one is, Avo eshtach avel hecha kachecha biyersecha. What's that pasta? Uh, it starts with something else. Matovu lecha yachimish kosach Yisrael. Vani brov chascha. I was missing three words. Vani brov chascha. Avol v'sech ishtach v'elchach shabir hazecha. So that's also a pasuk that they say, which has ten words. Uh, it also makes sense more in terms of what the theme of the pasuk is. I'm coming into shul. Avol ishtach v'elchach al kachecha. So that's also a uh, that's also a pasuk people use to use sort of the number ten. Yeah, you. Yes, he got punished for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. David Amalech did um, make the mistake of, uh, of counting people. Yeah. Yes, he did. So, so that's, uh, that's the first couple of psukim. And you give the machzitz a shekel. Why machzitz? A lot, a lot of, you know, Bali Musr talk about what does it represent? The fact that you're giving half of a coin, it means you're always incomplete. There's always someone else that you need to complete you, that kind of thing. Um, we, we, I, I, I would say also it's not just that, uh, that you have to come together with other people, but you always have to realize that you yourself are incomplete which is what we've talked about in the past in terms of the, the um, non-whole numbers of the Mishkan measurements. We've talked about that recently. Um, okay, 20 years and up. Ha'ashir lo yarbev ha'adal lo yamit, which is also good fodder for a lot of drashas, Hasidically, Hasidic uh, drashas that, that come from either, you know, the, the one who is rich, lo yarbev, should not think of himself as greater. Asher uh, bad in, in, in the conventional sense means the rich person doesn't have to give more. Vadaloyamit means doesn't have to give less. Everyone gives the same, which is itself an important thing to realize that we're all on the same level, even if we have different you know, bank accounts. But uh, in, in a Hasidic way, so Asher loyarbe, don't think you're so great because you're wealthy. Hadal, and if you're poor, loyamit, don't you know devalue your your worth also just because you don't have a lot of money. I would extend that to be, sort of extend the, uh, extend the drasha there. You shall see from the fact that everyone gives a machtis, everyone is incomplete. So in therefore everyone's contributions are worthwhile to Hashem. That's how I would type that also. I'm not sure if any other Hasidic rabbi say it like that, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did. Okay, Kesavikipurim, fine. Uh, then we have the Kior, page 486, the top of the page. Out of nowhere, you know, as they say, from the clouds. Where did this come from? Why are we talking about the Kior right now? Right? This is, it's, it's a wonderful, um, uh, it's, almost like a, it's almost like a modality at this point. Why isn't this mentioned in Truma, right? Whenever you find, you know, uh, the Mizbeach Hazav, as we saw at the end of the last week's Parsha, why is this, this is not, not, in, not in Truma? 
you know, and, and there are a couple other things that you that that we'll see in Vayakal and Pekuda. It's like, why wasn't this in Truma? That's like a, you know, insert item here about all the things that weren't in Parshas Truma. So why was the cure not in Truma? So I saw from the Nitziv that the cure wasn't in, in Parshas Truma because as opposed to all of the vessels of Parshas Truma, which were for the sake of Avoda, you think about the Mizbeachs, you think about the different, uh, the, the, the different implements, the different uh, tools that they had, you think about uh, the actual you know, physical building of, uh, of, of the, the Shulchan and uh, the menorah and things like that. The cure was really meant as a preparatory vessel. It wasn't, it's not itself, it's not itself something you use for avoda, meaning direct avoda. It is for the sake of avoda that ultimately you're going to be, you know, pure when you wash your hands with the laver, one of those biblical words that you don't find anywhere else in the world. Uh, What's a laver? Oh, that's the thing from the tabernacle. Uh, Has anyone ever heard the word laver in like a house or like, uh, you know, I don't know. A laver. Anyways, the cure. So, um, so I was once. What was when was this? I think this was maybe soon after October seventh. I heard a shear from Reverend Nachman Penner, and uh, and he advises. He advised then, and he says he advises all rabbit rabbis to to um, to read this parsha, to read the parsha of the cure before you go about your day. Because he, uh, he thinks that sometimes rabbis get to thinking, and this might be connected to something we're going to say later, some of the rabbis think that, uh, that, that their job that they're doing is not as significant as somebody else's job. You know, and he said this exa- you know, specifically after October 7th, where you know, rabbis wanted to go to Israel, they wanted to help. And he was saying to the rabbis, like, you have a job, you know, wherever you are, in Oak Park, Michigan, your job is to help the people there. And, and sometimes we don't believe that our job is best spent in the places that we are. And therefore, he said, you should read the Kiyor, because what the Kiyor will realize or, or allow you to appreciate is, this is my avoda. And as I, sort of before I start my day, I'm washing my hands to prepare for the avoda that I'm going to do here in Oak Park, Michigan. I'm not in the Mishkan, but this is my avoda. And in order to prepare for the avoda, you read the Kiyor. So he thought that was a good way to sort of like calibrate your mind to the, the proper approach uh, as a rabbi. Okay, very interesting. Uh, and you should wash the hands. This may or may not be the source of us washing our hands. Where's the source of washing our hands for bread? It could be from here. The Rashba, I believe, has a tshuva where he says something like that. Um, okay, okay. Then we talk about sort of the mishicha, the the anointing of the the anointing of the kohanim, the olive oil. The first couple aliyahs are very uh, abnormally long. I believe it's the second and third longest aliyahs in the Torah. I'm not sure if that's true, but they're definitely up there. First is the fourth aliyah of Nassau, and then these are not far behind. Um, the first two of Parshas Kisisa. Then you have a little bit more about the uh, the Ketores. We mentioned the Ketores at the end of last week's Parsha. This is another one where you could ask, wait, why wasn't this in Parshas Truma? Uh, or why isn't it in, you know, Vayikra? So here it talks about all the different ingredients uh, some people read this on uh, on the daily, every single day. You read the Ketores because it was brought every day. Uh, the Probably the most focused on ingredient of the Ketores is... No? Reina? What's the one that all the Darshan would like to talk about? No? The Chalbana. The Chalbana. Why the Chalbana? I don't know what the Chalbana... Uh, which one's the Chalbana? Well, they're all frankincense. Um, the Chalbana, I don't know how to translate it, but the Chalbana was a really foul-smelling spice. 
And, um, and they say that by itself, it smelled terrible. But when mixed in with all the other, all the other spices, so then it smelled, it, it contributed to it smelling very good. And uh, the drusha being, and the Gemara says this, the Gemara Tana says that you cannot, you cannot properly daven for a fast day unless you have sinners among you. Which, you know, easy to do, unfortunately. Uh, but the point is that the chalbana has to be part of the mix. You have to have the chalbana, the foul-smelling Jew, is also part of the beautiful-smelling ketores. Maybe on his own, he doesn't look so good. But if he has a structure around him, he has a community around him, he has other people that can help him around him, so then they will, uh, then the chalbana will smell very good. That's the, that's the drush that a lot of people make on that one. Um, okay. Let's keep moving. Bitzalel. Bitzalel. I don't know. Have we said Bitzalel's name yet? He also should have been mentioned in Truma. This might be the first mention of Bitzalel's name. He was the architect. It is an interesting, uh, interesting to note how old Bitzalel was. I think they say he was 13 or 14 when he was making the Mishkan. Um, but nonetheless, the Pasuk says at the bottom of 488, in the beginning of chapter 31, And I shall fill him with the godly spirit. In what way? Not only did he have the overarching vision, he understood how to make a plan. He understood sort of the generics of you know, architecture, but he also, he knew how to do each and every single task. So when he made, he had this vision, he said, okay, you know, I don't know if people are familiar with this. I know this a little bit just because I interned as an architect and a civil engineer, but, but you know, the architect has this big fancy plan and then people always assume, oh, the architect, he must know a lot of science. He must have to go, you know, a lot of calculus and physics. It's not true. The architect is literally just an artist for buildings. He makes a big fancy design, and then he sends it to the engineer, and he says, hey, can we build this? <laughs> the engineer's got to figure all this stuff out. So, so that's usually how it goes. The architect designs, has the vision, knows what, it wants to, what he or she wants it to look like, and then they give it to the person that's going to have to actually build the thing and say, hey, is this possible? Can we have you know, 72-foot ceilings or whatever it is. So, so here, what it's saying is, He not only knew the vision and he understood what he wanted it to look like, he also knew how to make it. And that was the, that was the brilliance that uh, he knew how to do the actual tasks. That, 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 I don't know if it's this pasuk. It might be later on, maybe in, um, maybe in Vayakal. I think it has the word, Melechas Machsheves which is the operative word for Shabbos. If the, if the task, if the activity that's in violation of 39 malachas, if one of the malachas that you do is not done with forethought and planning, so then it's not, it's not an Isra Deraisa. If you, for instance, what we would call a Davr Shein if you accidentally, you know, uh, you're washing your hands and then that water falls onto the, onto the, to the dirt, so that's technically a malacha. But you didn't want to do that. So that's not a malachas machsheves. For it to be considered a violation of the isidaraisa of planting or watering, whatever you want to call it. So then, so then you'd have to actually have that in mind. The last machsheves, you're going to do that. So, and as we know, the malachos of Shabbos are learned out, according to most, from the activities of the Mishkan. So that's part of this phrase. Lachshav machshavos. Bitzala, when doing the malacha of the Mishkan, did it with machshava. He did it with forethought. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he did it with that purpose. He knew exactly how he was going to do it. Fine. Uh, and then if you keep going, the Bahanam of 490 is an important, 
is an important paragraph here. This is talking about Shabbos. This is perhaps the connection between the Mishkan and Shabbos. To the extent that we have to build the Mishkan, you should only do it when it's not Shabbos. So that's what it says. Nonetheless, keep Shabbos. Anyone know the source, what this is the source of? It is a sign between me and you. This is the source that we do not wear tefillin on Shabbos. Because Shabbos is an os and tefillin is an os. Let's keep Brismila out of this. And just assume that every person, every Jewish male has to have a sign at all times, maybe two signs if you conclude Brismila, a sign at all times that he is connecting to Hashem. So uh, if it's Shabbos or Yantif, we assume that we have that os, but based on this Pasuk, we have that sign. We have a connection. Look, I'm not doing any malacha today. That's the sign that I am connected to Hashem. But on a weekday where I don't have that sign, I don't have that connection, so then I have to put tefillin on in order to establish that connection, which also says the word os. Right? All the... Anyone who does a who desecrates Shabbos will get the death penalty. Of course, only if all of the conditions are met. Work shall be done. You must. And here you have the famous phrase that we have in Hashemon Esrei and part of our Kiddush for most people on Shabbos morning. What does that mean? That the Jewish people shall keep or guard the Shabbos. Vishamru typically, at least according to the Gemara, which is really using a drasha for the Asar Sidibra, says Vishamru means that you are refraining from the activities that you can't do. That's the word Shamur, as opposed to Zachor, which is to do the other things that you should do, like Kiddush. So Shamru B'nei Yisrael Shabbos, La'asos, it's an interesting word. What does that mean? La'asos, to make Shabbos? What do you mean, make Shabbos? Shabbos is here, whether I like it or not. Right? How, what do you mean, La'asos, it's Yom HaShabbos, the Kacho? So there are different ways of understanding this, but... Um, it, 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 uh, I think, to me, at least, conventional wisdom is to say, or the pshat, I think, means, and this is, uh, I, I, I think I saw this from this fast time, it's also in a, in a specific way, but kind of a different way. But la'asosis ha'shabbos means that sometimes refraining from work is itself a chore, right? You ever, uh, you ever come upon maybe like, uh, this, this happens a lot with kids, relevant to last week's Parsha, the... Um, but the, sometimes you have a kid who's struggling to do something. So what's your instinct? I'm going to go help him. I'm going to go help her. I'm going to make, the, you know, make it better for them. Whoa, 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 whoa. Why is that the right thing to do? Just because it'll help them get to their destination to get the result that they want doesn't mean that you should help them. Sometimes the best thing to do is not do something. The best thing to do for a kid who's trying to work hard, you know, what's going to be if every time the kid starts to, to wobble on his bicycle, you go over and you, and you hold him? You're never going to learn. They're never going to learn how to stabilize themselves, right? It, the, is, is it the best thing to do to always, you know, to, 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 to carry the kid while they're learning how to swim in the water? They'll never learn how to swim. You have to let them figure it out. You have to let them struggle. And sometimes, that's the point here, la so says Yom Shabbos means sometimes to create Shabbos, you have to hold yourself back. And that's a malacha. Sometimes that's work. Sometimes that, that takes a lot of uh, restraint, a lot of strength, a lot of uh, forethought to not do something. And some people who struggle with Shabbos, you know, Baruch Hashem, at least for me, you know, I grew up with Shabbos. So for me to not, you know, turn a television on on Shabbos, first of all, I don't have a television, so that would be hard to do. But to just, 
just if I to not turn on the phone or to not, like those things are just second nature to me. I don't even think about them. In the words of Rev, Rev Elio Dustler, that's not where my nekudas habachira is. I'm not at that point. That's not a struggle for me. But uh, for some people who who grew up watching TV or using their phones or whatever, so to not do that is a real struggle. That's la asos. That's a real. You have to do that. You have to work at that. That's what it means. La asos. That's the Shabbos stories. Let me so long. Okay. I believe Rashi says, right? The word when he was finished, when Hashem was finished speaking to Moshe, the word is spelled without a vav. It should be with lamed vav stuff. And here there's no vav there, which implies that it's like what's a kala? It's a bride. Says Rashi, I believe over here, if I'm not mistaken. Um, oh, interesting. It's, this is not actually about the Mishkan. There's another word, Kechaloso, in Parshas Naso, where he says that, Rasha, that the Mishkan is like a chuppah. Here he doesn't say that one. Here he says that the halachos of the Mishkan were given over to Moshe Rabbeinu. The Torah, sorry, was given over to Moshe Rabbeinu like a, like a, like a, like a kala gets a gift. Just given right to him. I believe there's a medrash that says... Uh, this one says that Moshe Rabbeinu was not able to learn so much Torah in such a small amount of time, so Hashem just sort of like downloaded it into his brain. Now this is soon, you know, what, what do they say? It, it, you know, soon to be in theaters by you. What's that word? You know, coming, coming soon to a theater near you or something like that, right? So here also, um, so I, I feel like this is going to be something that the future has. You know, you can just download information into your brain, you know? When you were, you know, when some of you were younger, did you ever imagine what things would happen in the future? I'm sure somebody could have imagined that there would be these computer things and these telephone things that you didn't have to plug in all the time. You could have imagined that kind of thing. So today we have all this AI, we have all this stuff. I imagine at some point we're going to be able to download information into our brain. Not that we would know it and have it at our fingertips, but we could sort of go into our brains and... I see that coming. Anyways, anyone who knows Elon Musk sees that he talks about this kind of stuff. So either way, so this is, this, this is exactly what Hashem did for Moshe Rabbeinu. 40 days and 40 nights, you can't learn Kol HaTorah Kula in 40 days. Here, let me just download it into your brain. And that's what, that's what Rashi means. Like a kala got a gift. Like the bride got a gift from her groom. That's how Moshe Rabbeinu got the Torah. Just like, just gave him the whole thing. Gave him the whole Torah. That's, by, that's why we have here, luchos ha'edos, interesting, the word luchos also is missing a vav. At least typically it would be spelled luchot lamed ches vav saf. It sounds, if you don't have nekudos, it, sound, it, it looks like it should sound like lachat or luchat. Luchat would be one tablet. Why is it spelled why is it spelled as one tablet when it's really supposed to be read as two tablets? So some explain, I believe, that this is meant to show that the two sides of the luchos were just as important. They, they were, they're a package deal. We did it later also when, when it says about Moshe Rabbeinu throwing down the luchos that, uh, that, uh, that he threw the miya dove from his hands even though it only has one, one uh, it doesn't have a yud there. Maybe we'll get there, we've said it in the past. Either way, both sides of luchos, which are traditionally understood as Bain Adam Lachavera, Bain Adam Lamakom. Both of them are important. You can't have one without the other. You can't be a good person and then just say, eh, but I don't want to keep kosher. And you can't keep kosher and say, well, I don't want to be a good person. You need both. If you want to be a full-fledged Ovid Hashem, you need both. And that's why it says Luchos without a Vav, as if to say they're one stone, even though there might be two stones. They're definitely two stones. Nonetheless, they are considered like one and they're both, uh, they're a package deal. 
They were written be'etzba elokim. Unclear what written means because we know charusal haluchos. They were uh, they were carved into the into the stones. They went all the way through according to Goran Shabbos. Vayar ha'am kivoshesh Moshe. Vayar ha'am kivoshesh Moshe. According to the people, Moshe was delaying. According to the people, he was taking too long. Right. This is the famous uh, medrash the Gemara tells us in, in also Shabbos, a different part of Shabbos peches, I believe that. They miscalculated, and the word boshesh here means to delay, but it also could be interpreted as in six. They miscalculated six hours worth. They belonged to the first day, the second day, whatever. They assumed Moshe Rabbeinu was coming down. He didn't. Make for us a God, that would go in front of us. This Moshe, the, the man. What do you mean the man? Everyone knows Moshe is a man. What does that mean, Moshe Ha'ish? So as I've said in the past, Moshe was the man. There was nobody else that could speak to Hashem like Moshe Rabbeinu, as we'll see later. Moshe Ha'ish, he was the guy. We can't do it. We can't speak to Hashem. And that was their, uh, that was their fatal flaw, that they understood, that they did not understand, is that everybody, everyone has Hashem on speed dial. You don't need a Moshe Rabbeinu to talk to Hashem. You can talk to Hashem. We can all talk to Hashem. And that's the Avodah Zarah of the Eglazav. Even though Avodah Zarah typically means to worship, worship a, another god, they're not making a god that, can, you know, that they believe is going to you know, do things for them. They're making a god that can serve as an intermediary, just like Moshe was. That's how they viewed Moshe. Mistakenly so, but that's how they viewed him. And then Aaron says, okay, fine. And he, at least according to the Medrash, he tries to delay them, give me all your jewelry and, and, and whatever it is. Um, where do we have the drasha that it wasn't the women? Where is it? Which pasuk is that in? Yeah, you go take the jewelry from your wives' ears because the women weren't going to give them up. The women weren't going to give them up. We're not going to contribute to an eagle as of no way. So that's why Aaron said you're going to have to pry them out of their ears. Maybe this was another uh, another tactic that Aaron was trying to say. You you deal with your wives. That'll that'll buy me a few hours. You know that'll buy me a, you know some time that that uh, they'll be delayed until they can get all the jewelry out of their women out of their wives. So um, and this, by the way, is a source for a lot of other halachos that women don't have to uh, don't have to. <clears throat> um, what's one? The one that I can remember off the top of my head is. That women, there's a halacha that that you shouldn't wear jewelry on Yom Kippur because it's the ain't kategoriyasa It sort of reminds Hashem of the Egel Azav. So I believe it's Rabbi Kiva Eger that says that women don't have to follow that because they weren't part of the Egel Azav in the first place, right? They don't. Uh, they weren't part of that in the first place, and therefore it's not a problem for them to wear jewelry on on Yom Kippur. Okay, I don't know if you do or not. There, there it's the machlokas about post whether you should. Based on this, uh, based on this pasuk, okay, and then uh, and then by Aaron even Aaron made and he said Chag Hashem Machar. Wait a little bit. I've always I've always pointed this out. How long was it going to be until Moshe Rabbeinu came down with the luchos? Forty days and forty nights, right? That's how long was prescribed for for Har Sinai. The moment of Har Sinai or post or post-revelation, was supposed to be four days, four nights. And here, he, and here is Aaron trying to get them to just wait one night, right? Just give me a day. Just give me one sleep. Let's sleep on it. And the people were so quick. They were so quick to give it all up, 
right? The difference between things that you wait for and the things that you don't wait for. The things that you wait for are almost always more important than things you don't wait for. The things that you have to do right in the moment or quickly, the things you want to do quickly are oftentimes just giving into your own desires. It's the things that you have, you have to wait for which are oftentimes most important. And that's why Aaron and, trying, Aaron and Cohen is trying to push them off a little bit. We waited 40 days and 40 nights for Moshe Rabbeinu and now you're doing the Eglazov in, in, a, in, in an hour? You want to do it so quickly? So that's why, uh, that's why uh, he says, let's, let's try machar. That's how Rashi understands machar tomorrow. Let's do it tomorrow. And then, by he got up in the, in the morning, and, uh, and all of a sudden, everyone's already, already worshiping this golden calf. Very interesting phrasing. What does amcha mean? Your people. Not my people, your people. Moshe Rabbeinu, your people are, are destroying themselves. The ones that you took out of Egypt. It's a very interesting phrasing. I could propose, I'm not sure if this sort of fits with the rest of the narrative, I could propose that maybe this is a reference to the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu had coddled them a little bit. That Moshe Rabbeinu made them dependent on him. Similar again to Lahalos Nertamid, as we said last week, that the Jewish people felt like Kizem Moshe Ha'ish. We need Moshe. When we didn't have water, Moshe got us water. When we needed to cross the sea, Moshe opened the sea, right? It, it almost was like they didn't get the message that it was from Hashem. They all assumed that it was Moshe Rabbeinu. And maybe that's why, again, I'm not saying this is absolutely so, but maybe that's why Hashem is using this phraseology, that uh, you are the one that took them out of Egypt. Your nation is, uh, is no good. Saru Maher, a very interesting phrase. I wonder how often the word Saru comes up, but we know it from... Moshe Rabbeinu at the Sneh. Kind of interesting that Hashem is asking Moshe, do what you did at the Sneh. You remember when you were walking on your way? I'm now going to turn my attention to the bush. That's what you said to me, Moshe Rabbeinu. Now, Saru Maher, they turned away um, from, uh, they strayed quickly. The Jewish people turned their attention to uh, other things. Not like you, that you turned attention towards me. They're turning their attention otherwise. Uh, they made an ego masecha. Interesting word, masecha, means like a cover. It's like a partition of some kind, uh, a mask, if you will. And, uh, and that's exactly what the Jewish people see. Again, they don't see themselves as connecting directly to Hashem. They need something in front of them. Um, okay, okay, this is the, the, this is the God that took, about it, that, that took you out of Egypt. Again, in, in place of Moshe Rabbeinu. And then, and then Hashem says to Moshe, and now, Allow me, let me destroy them. And I will make you, Moshe Rabbeinu, will start again from you. Sounds a lot like Noah, by the way, but uh, we're not going to that right now. So, um, so how do we understand this? Moshe, Hashem wants to destroy the Jewish people, or he wants us to know that he was going to destroy the whole Jewish people. And then we have the landing for a fast day. No greater landing for a fast day than this. He says to Hashem, why are you being upset with them? Why are you letting sort of the enemies of the Jewish people sort of, you know, have their narrative? Remember Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And then, Vayifen, Vayered, Moshe, Menahar. Moshe goes down the mountain, what he didn't believe Hashem. Then he sees what the Jewish people were doing, and then he destroyed the Luchos. A lot to talk about here. We don't have any time anymore. But um, we should have started from the end of the Parsha today. Um, Yeshua hears something, and Moshe Rabbeinu says, no, it's not what you think it is. It's the Jewish people. You know, we're destroying everything. Vayishaber osam tachasahar. Vayishaber is not vayishbor. It doesn't mean that he broke them. That would be in like a couple pieces. 
Vaishaber means he decimated them. He pulverized them. The luchos were absolute, like, small little pieces of nothingness. Uh, and he had to go pick them all up, or they had to pick them all up, put them back in the, in the Aron afterwards. So that was an interesting imagery. But then he takes the Egel Azav, and he burns that until it's, uh, until it's very fine, and he made the Jewish people drink it. Unclear why he made them do that, but okay. Um, Moshe seems to be getting mad at Aaron. Aaron says, what do you want me to do? The Jewish people made me do it. could be that he did it because Chor had already died, according to the Medrash, and therefore Aaron said, if they, they, they're going to kill me too. Uh, it's a whole question about why he wouldn't give up his life for Avodah Zarah. We're not going to get into that right now. Um, <clears throat> yeah, he goes through the whole story. And then Moshe says, Who is for God? Who here is for God? Right, it's a very interesting phrase. Um, okay, we're not going to go through exactly what, exactly what happens after that. But um, Okay, let's go back to, let, let, let's go into Perak uh, Lam and Gimel by going into the sheet. If you look at Perak Lam and Gimel, Pasakei, so it says, Vayomar Hashem al Moshe. Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, Amoral Bnei Yisrael, Tem Amkshe Oref. Tell the Jewish people, by the way, you're very stubborn, as if uh, they didn't know that already. But uh, you're very stubborn people. Raga Echad In one moment, in one moment, I can go within you and kill you and, and destroy you. As Arts will translate it, you are a stiffened people. If I ascend among you, I may annihilate you in an instant. So now remove your jewelry and uh, remove your jewelry. I, I guess the jewelry was part of the Egel Azav part. Um, unless it is itself, what did Rashi say it? Um, he doesn't explain it. Why they move it through jewelry? Oh, that the Medrash says it was the Nash of Inishman crowns? Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, a few different Mepharshim, the Art Scroll, Chumash talks about. Um, that the jewelry, the jewelry represented sort of like a, a, a higher status of, of being, one way or another, different explanations. So he said, take it off, you're not so great anymore, right? Sort of humble yourself by taking off your jewelry. And I'm going to figure out what I should do with you. You know, the Medrash, the, the, I think it's Medrash, talks about the, or Mashal, I don't know if it's Medrash or Mashal, could be both, that the, the king who said, you know, if I ever catch whoever is destroying my garden, they're going to, you know, they're going to get this huge boulder. You ever heard this one? Right? I think I've said this before. You know, someone keeps trampling the king's garden. And he says, okay, that's it. Whoever I catch, you know, destroying my garden, they're going to get this boulder. And they're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to, you know, you're going to get this boulder. You're going to die from, uh, for what you've done. And, uh, and then they find out that it's none other than the, kin, the king's own children that were destroying the garden. So now the king's distraught. I said, I, I can't not keep my word. I'll, I'll lose all the respect. So what do I do? So his advisors say, why don't you take the boulder and break it up into small little pieces? And every so often, you'll just throw one of the stones at your kids. So you'll have accomplished what you said you were going to do, but you also won't kill your kids. So that's what they say is the, you know, what is Hashem going to do in the future? 
Hashem will exact retribution for the Eagle Azav. Every so often, the Jews will get a little stone thrown at them. Uh, and that's obviously symbolic of you know, difficulties of the Jewish people. Easier said than, uh, than, than seen, but okay. Uh, they, they did take away their, their jewelry, fine. Um, Moshe, yikacha, so, what did Moshe do? That's what Hashem said. What did Moshe do? Moshe took the tent and he moved it outside of the camp. I can't be among you. And when Moshe Rabbeinu left his tent, all of the people would stand up. They would look towards Moshe until he went to his tent. When Moshe Rabbeinu would go to the Oa Moed, he would, uh, the, the, the cloud would follow him. And Hashem would speak to Moshe in that, in that, in that tent. And the people would see. And the people would bow down to what was assumed to be Hashem's presence there. And what does it say? Pasagid Aleph famously. That Hashem spoke to Moshe face to face. Like someone speaks to a friend. I recently, uh, I, I said this in a different class. I said I recently was watching some of Tuvia Singer videos. I know Bacha is a big Tuvia Singer fan, um, and as am I. That uh, and he often gets this question: Hey, doesn't it say that Moshe spoke face to face with God? Isn't that a reference to other people who have literal faces, which we won't get into? But you know why they're using that this as a proof text. And Tuvia Singer's response is always: You have to look at the next three words. Right? It's not just that he spoke to him face to face. It means he spoke to him face to face like a person talks to their friend. It doesn't mean literally physically, because Hashem says later on, that no one speaks to me and lives. No one sees me and lives. Maybe you said that earlier. But either way, no one sees, no one sees me and lives. So this can't be understood as physically. Don't just take it, and this is classic you know, missionary, uh, missionary tactic. They'll take one phrase and say, look at this phrase. Doesn't this mean there was a person who was also like God? No, it doesn't mean that. You have to look at all the whole Pasuk and the context of the Pasuk, which says that you can't see God. Even Moshe Rabbeinu couldn't see him. So that's why it says here, What does it mean that he spoke to him face to face? Like a friend speaks to, to, to his friend, like a person speaks to his friend, that he were able to converse in such a, such a casual manner. You know, it could be a whole casual manner, but, uh, but not with some kind of, uh, you know... Um, not with poetry and not with uh, sim- symbolism like Yeshayo or Yechezkiyo. Uh, Yechezkiyo, I mean. Uh, and Yechezkiyo. Either way. Veshavel ma'achana. Then it says, and then he went back to the camp. Umesharso Yeshua benun na'ar lo yamish b'toch ha'ol. And Yehoshua benun, the lad, didn't leave the tent. So unclear, what exactly does this Pasuk mean? Moshe Rabbeinu goes back to the camp, which he had moved out of, and his assistant, Yehoshua benun, is a child, he stayed in the tent. What, what, what are they both doing? Why is Moshe Rabbeinu going to the camp? Why is Yehoshua staying in the, in, the, in the tent? So what exactly is happening? If you look at the Gemara in Brachos, the Gemara says, V'shavu amachna amr rabbi abahu. This is Gemara in Brachos, Daf Samach Gimel 63b. Amr rabbi abahu, amr la kadosh baruch Moshe. Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, achshav yomru harav v'kas v'tamad v'kas. What are the Jewish, gonna, what are the Jewish people going to say? They already know that I'm upset. Right? They, the Jewish people know that they're not on my good side right now. And they're going to see you, Moshe Rabbeinu, and they're going to see that you're also upset. So they're going to see Yisrael, Mate Aleim. What's going to be with the Jewish people? 
both of their leaders, their ultimate leader Hashem, and their you know, indirect leader Moshe Rabbeinu, is not, uh, is not happy with them. What's going to be with them? So says Hashem to Moshe Rabbeinu, If you put your tent back to where it's supposed to be, so good. But if you don't, I'm going to appoint Yehoshua Benun instead of you. Interesting. So then it says, That's what it means when the Pasuk says, Moshe Rabbeinu brought the tent back into the, the camp. You don't see that in the Pasuk. But that's what the Gemara says, is referring to the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu brought his tent back to the Machas. So if that's the case, so what does it mean that Yehoshua Benun stayed in the tent? The fact that Hashem said it means that it had to come true at some point. Rashi says, what does that mean? Um, if you go to the second line in Rashi in the middle, that uh, even though Moshe Rabbeinu did what Hashem said and he brought the tent back, Yoshua still stayed in the tent and, uh, and, and helped out. Uh, even though he wasn't the Moshe Rabbeinu anymore, he still worked in the tent like Moshe Rabbeinu did. Um, so it didn't go completely uh, unnoticed. If, however, you look at the Svarno, the Svarno understands it a little bit differently. That's the Gemara, by the way. So that's, you know, you can't disagree with the Gemara, but at least it's only one opinion. So says the Svarno, Lo yamish mitocha ol. This is a very interesting take. He's talking about Yehoshua. He never left the tent. What tent? Limnoa shelo yikanes. Hold on. Hold on one second. Limnoa shelo yikanes sham adam Yisrael. Nobody left the tent of Moshe Rabbeinu. All of the Jewish people were disgraced. Um, trying to figure out how to say the word. Shiryat, maybe Shiryat. Shiryat, Shkina, the dwelling of Hashem's presence. Just like Hashem said to Moshe Rabbeinu at the burning bush, don't come near me. Right, Moshe Rabbeinu, you're not yet on a high enough level to come near me, at least with shoes on. He wasn't yet ready for it. So what does it mean that Yehoshua lo yamish mitocha ohel? I think the Svarna was saying that even Yehoshua didn't leave his own personal tent. I'm not sure. But nobody could go. Lo shum adam Yisrael. Nobody, even Yehoshua, didn't leave his tent. So it's the opposite. It's not saying that Yoshua was in the tent that Moshe Rabbeinu was in. It's saying that Yoshua didn't leave his tent to go to the one that Moshe Rabbeinu was in. Because even the Mesharis Moshe, even, the one, even Moshe Rabbeinu's assistant, never left his own tent. Right? Similar to, uh, to Moshe, as we know from Yaakov, Yoshev Ohalim. He stayed in his tent and he daven and then he learned. So that's the Svarno's take on it. The Hemek Davar says the opposite. Hamak Dever the Nitziv explains, Mishar saw Yoshua ben Nenar, Hodia Hakasuf, Di Yoshua, Afagav Shekvar Hagadol Bishanim, even though Yoshua ben Nun was already older. It calls Menar, Laruch, Laerech Hamishim Shana. Yoshua was probably 50 years old at this point. Vigam Gadol Batorah Vachachma. And he learned a lot of Torah at this point. Vim Kane, and therefore, Hayamoel Harbe Lemosha. He was very helpful to Moshe Rabbeinu as a 50 year old. 
to help Moshe with all the tasks that he needed. Um, he would have been very helpful if he would go along with Moshe Rabbeinu, wherever Moshe Rabbeinu was going into the, it says, right? It says the Moshe Rabbeinu v'shevelamachana. Not assuming like the Gemara, that that means he brought his actual tent. But Moshe Rabbeinu went among the people. And it would have been very, very helpful to have an assistant, somebody else to, to have with him that would help him out among the people. And says the Nitziv, that would have been very helpful. Aval He was like a child. What does that mean, he was like a child? Kemoshlo leflagus ruven binyanim elu. I don't know what that means. Um, I, I assume maybe it means that Ruvain was older. I'm not, I'm not sure what he means by that phrase, but we, as if he wasn't older. Why didn't he leave the tent to go with Moshe Rabbeinu among the people? Yoshua's job was to understand the oral law. That was Yoshua's job. Moshe Rabbeinu taught it to them. Yoshua had to remember it. He had to continue learning. It was just flowing in Moshe's tent. And therefore, even to go help Moshe Rabbeinu, he didn't do. Even to go be the assistant of Moshe Rabbeinu, he stayed in his tent and he didn't help. Yoshua's job was to learn. He was a kolol guy. He sat and he learned so that he could be the, you know, the, the, the purveyor of Torah Shabbat as we know from the Mishnah in Avos, that Yehoshua Benun was the one that got the Torah Shabbat Peh from Moshe Rabbeinu. So that's according to the Nitzif. According to the Gemara, it's a reference to the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu brought the tent back into, back into the, the, the camp. According to the Svarno, it means that Yehoshua didn't even go into that tent. And according to the Nitziv, it means he never left that tent. Right? So a lot of different explanations. But one that I found particularly meaningful was, uh, was from Rav Zalman Tzaraskin in his Oznayim Torah, which we have on the shelf over there. What does it mean, Vishav al Moshe Rabbeinu went back to the camp. So we have two interpretations. Either that means he went by himself without Yoshua. That's, that's what we just read from the Nitziv. Or it means he went um, with his tent. He brought his tent back to the, to the Machana. Uh, and Yoshua was in it the whole time. So says Rav Zalman Saratskin, Vishav al Yeshman Higim Ka'ila, there are some leaders of the Jewish people that, 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 that stay exclusively on their own in the tents of Torah. I think this is supposed to be they, they stay and they learn and they learn and they learn so, so much that it actually gets difficult for them to relate to people who are trying to get close to Hashem. Other people who don't know as much Torah than them, right? Machmat chashash bitzel Torah. The people that are sitting and learning all the time. So those leaders find it difficult to even spend time answering other people's questions. This famously happened by the Kutzka Rebbe. He, would, he did not want to answer anyone's questions anymore. After a certain point, he just wanted to sort of cloister away and uh, you know, be, be a hermit. And he, that's what he basically did for the last 20 years of his life. He just sat in his own room and he learned. And he had very few people that could even talk to him. Um, and that's what led to the Me'ashiloach breaking off and creating Ishbitz and Radzin because uh, he was willing to answer everyone's questions. And that's, uh, it was part of, apparently, part of the sticking point that the Katsuk Rebbe didn't like, that, that he was answering the questions, but the Katsuk Rebbe wasn't answering them. Anyways, not getting into that, uh, that whole history. But if you're, if you're uh, a leader 
that's so involved, so engrossed in your Torah learning that you can't relate and answer other people's questions because it'll be bits of Torah for you. And all the more so, it, it, and not only the people that want to learn Torah, the people that are religious, the people that are from that want to grow close to Hashem, those people you have struggle. All the more so, do the uh, do the long day, the the misboded in Baalei Torah, those who sit in kolal and and and, and shtag away, you know, they also find it even more difficult to relate to those who don't are not mevakshi Hashem, the people that are not so religious, the people that are not so from that 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 they can't relate to those people, you know, the people that are religious that are from, they even have a, they have a, t- a difficult time, you know, relating to them, answering their questions because of Bittel Torah. But all the more so they have a difficult time with the people that aren't learned, that aren't asking, aren't religious. Aval says Rav Saratskin, third line in the middle. Aval alehem lilmod me adon hanavim. Those individuals, those leaders who cloister themselves away inside of the base medrash, they should learn lilmod me adon hanavim. They should learn from the master of all prophets. Shahayalome Torah mi piagvura. Moshe Rabbeinu. Learned directly with Hashem. Which makes it connect to the first part of the Pasuk. And, they sp- and he spoke to Hashem face to face. And nonetheless, even though he was on such a high lofty level that he spoke directly with Hashem, he not only answered the questions of those who were particularly religious and learned, he sought out those who were not seeking out Hashem. That's what it means. Moshe Rabbeinu went back to the camp. He, yes, he was upset at them. Yes, he didn't understand them. Yes, he, was, he, was, he punished them. But after all of that, he goes back to the camp. He goes back to the people that were not being great over Hashem. They were you know, not davening well. They were not learning well. They were not what we would call Mavakshi Hashem. And nonetheless, Moshe Rabbeinu goes back to the camp to go seek those people out. This is in between. It's kind of in between the forgiveness period. It's in the middle of it. Yeah. And what does that mean, therefore, about Yoshua? Yoshua didn't leave. Moshe Rabbeinu, according to the Rezalman Saratskin, Moshe Rabbeinu went back into the camp. He left on foot. He just went into the camp. He started going door to door like a Torah salesman. Hey, I'm here to give you chizik about keeping the Torah. I know I just got mad at you a few days ago, but I'm here to be mechazik you now. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu did. Even the people that weren't so firm, even the people that worshipped the, 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 the Egel Azav, or, or were stand, you know, uh, uh, stood utterly by by the Egel Azav, he went and he went to, to, to give them chizik. So what did Yoshua do? Lo yamish mitoch ha'ol, Yoshua never left the tent. Why? Because Moshe Rabbeinu was out doing his Kirov thing, and you know who stayed back in the base measures? Yoshua. Says Razam Sereskin, a beautiful concept. The work that was supposed to be done in the camp, among those who were not Mavakish Hashem, those who needed the extra chizak, those who were not davening, those people who were not learning, those people that Moshe Rabbeinu was going to help. Kashahi pikama. That work is much harder. Kashahi pikama min That's much harder. 
It's much harder to be the rabbi who has to go be mechazic people who are not very religious than to be the rabbi that's sitting in the base medrash and answering the shilohs of all the people that want to be religious. I said this to, to a mentor of mine, now you know, the executive vice president of the OU, Rav Moshe Hauer. I sat down with him when I was starting out as a rabbi and I said, what am I doing here? You know, you have these huge Russia yeshiva in Lakewood and you have these you know, big Tamida chachamim in these yeshivish places. They're the ones that know all the information that I need to help the people that aren't, you know, with, you don't have the huge yeshiva background, haven't been learning in Kolo. And those Rosh Yeshiva are sitting, teaching people that already know a lot. We need them to be on the front lines. We need them. And he says, yeah, that's, that's how the world works. That we need those people to do, the, the, the people that are doing the harder work, that are out, you know, in the trenches, trying to, trying to mechazic Jews are having a difficult time. Those are the people who, unfortunately, you know, they don't know as much because they're the ones that are willing to do the, the hard work. So they can sit and learn. But it also means that, you know, there's an availability for, for those who are not as uh, established to get these kinds of jobs, as he's saying here. Um, Moshe Rabbeinu went into the camp. The student is the one that stayed back in the base medrash. For him, those, you can deal with the people that are, they're just asking about, you know, the, the Rebbe Kivager. They're asking about how to learn the Gemara. Like, those people, Yoshua, you can take care of those people. Moshe Rabbeinu is needed for the hard work. The hard work of, ex, of, of, of encouraging people to keep to our mitzvos that aren't keeping to our mitzvos. Yeah, he can't, he's not going to explain to them any tosis many time soon. He's not going to go into all of the uh, Rav Baruch Bears and all of the, uh, the Brisker Rebbe Shtikl Torahs. But he's going to try to get them to, to, to put on tefillin. He's going to try to put, get them to, to daven the next day. He's going to try to be mechazik them to do the basic stuff that they haven't been doing. So it says, So there's this fascinating dichotomy, there's this fascinating dynamic between Moshe and Yeshua that we could focus on. So who does what jobs and, and what's considered like the way sort of the higher status position, right? Everyone wants to be the Rosh Yeshiva. I say this to people a lot. You know, people are asking me, going to Chinuch, going to Rabbanus, whatever. And I say, everybody wants the job at the head of the yeshiva. Everyone wants the job to teach, you know, the guys in a gap year program. They want to be a Rebbe at Shalvim or whatever, right? But they don't realize that the, the more important work is being the second grade Rebbe, the third grade Rebbe, the fourth grade Rebbe, who's, who's starting the children out with olive base, working them through, the, working them through a Pasuk and Rashi to help them understand sort of the beauty of Torah. That's when we need the good Rebbeim. We don't need the good Rebbeim that, of, of, you know, teaching Shir at a yeshiva, those, that's a self-selecting crowd. They're in yeshiva, right? Those people are already there. They're already learning. They're already committed to, 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 to you know, opening up a Gemara. We need the Rebbeim that are willing to do it with the kids that aren't there yet. We need, we need the good Rebbeim that's going to start them off on their right foundation. So that's one dynamic that I think is, is fascinating about this Rav Zaman Saraskin. But the other, the other aspect, just focusing on Moshe Rabenu. Moshe Rabenu was at Har Sinai. He was just hearing Hashem's words face to face. And he is giving over the most momentous a moment in Jewish people's history. You know, sort of being the conduit for the Aseris Hadibros. And he goes up and he gets these luchos. And he gets the Torah Shabbat Peh. He, is, he, has just been, he has just downloaded the entire Kola Torah Kula into his memory. And he is, you can imagine, all the Torah he's running through. You know, Vilna Gon, obviously much more than the Vilna Gon, no offense to Vilna Gon, but he's Moshe Rabbeinu. And he knows all of Torah at his fingertips. And, he, and he, all he wants to do is give shir. You know, all he wants to do is explain, you know, a beautiful shtikl Torah in, 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 you know, the Gemara Babakama and the Tosasim and the Rebbe Kivayegas. He just wants to give all of that over. And what does he do instead? He puts that all aside. He says, Yoshua, you can take care of the Tosfos. You can take care of, you can take care of Rebbe Kivayegas. 
I'm going to go over here. There's a guy here that hasn't davened in three days. I'm going to try to get him to daven. And in, in you know, five minute span, he's going from learning kola to trying to get this guy to put filling on. Trying to get this guy to do the most mundane, you know, relatively mundane, obviously not mundane, but the, the relatively, you know, uh, simple Jewish tasks. Put somebody else on that job. So Moshe Rino said, no, my job is to mechazik the Jewish people in Torah and mitzvahs. My job is not to show off. My job is not to show how much Torah I know. My job is not to do the most thing that I enjoy. My job is to do what Hashem wants me to do. And it reminded me of the story, I don't know if I've said it before or not, but the story I once heard from a, uh, from a Rav in, uh, in Baltimore, or I read it, I think, in a blog. Rav Walter, his name is Rav Yisrael Motzen. He has wonderful, you know, Divrei Torah. I think he's a Rav at... Um, it's in the building of Ner Tamid. I don't know if he is Ner Tamid. Maybe it's only, I don't remember. They have a lot of shul. Baltimore has gone you know, way beyond my, uh, my memories. But um, he's also the executive uh, assistant to Rabbi Hauer. So anyway, so he once wants referenced this story, and I just loved it. It says from a, a woman, Indra Nuyi, who was the former CEO of PepsiCo. And um, it's just a beautiful, poignant story. Obviously, you can use other, you know, ask other stories along these lines, but this is just very poignant the way that she says it. She says, I'll never forget coming home after being pre- named president of PepsiCo back in 2001. My mother was visiting at the time. I've got great news for you, I shouted. She replied, it can wait. We need you to go out and get some milk. So I go out and I get milk. When I come back, I'm hopping mad. I say, I had great news for you. I've just been named president of PepsiCo and all you want me to do is go out and get milk? Then she says, let me explain something to you. You may be the president of PepsiCo, but when you step into this house, you're a wife and a mother first. Nobody can take that place. So leave that crown in the garage. Such a beautiful, poignant message that she got from her mother. Yeah, you just, you just spoke directly to Hashem. Pal, pal, dabarbo. Which is a positive from later on. Panama upon him, right? You spoke to Hashem, but we don't need you. We don't need you to be the Rosh Hashiva. We need you to talk to, to Shmerel down the street who hasn't put on tefillin in three days. We need you to talk to, uh, to, 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 to Sarala who hasn't been you know, lighting Shabbos candles properly. We, that's who we need. We need a person that can do that job. We don't need, uh, we don't need you know, the big fancy titles. And as I, as I put in the title here, you know, it's, not about, it's not about the position you have. It's about the mission you have. Now, whether that's a big thing or a small thing, our mission is our mission. And even if we might be the more expert, we might be, you know, uh, you know we re- rose to this title or that position of, of prominence of some kind. We have jobs. We have responsibilities. Leave your title, leave your position at the door and go in and do what you have to do. And I just see this, this, this contrast of what Moshe Rabbeinu was just doing on the top of Har Sinai and when he was tasked to do. Go talk to the people that, that haven't davened in a while. Go talk to the people that need extra chizuk. So I, I think, you know, before we get too into ourselves, you know, I say this to myself all the time also, you know, bath time is right before Mincha, but that's my first job, you know. So, uh, so before we get too, uh, too self-absorbed based on what other people tell us we are with our position or our prominence in other ways, so we should sort of check ourselves in the mirror and realize we have other responsibilities and those are just as important. Those are just as important, just like Moshe Rabbeinu left the Rosh Yeshiva position that he gave to Yoshua in order to go help the, the common Jew down the street, we also can do in our own ways, not get, too, uh, not get too haughty about what our positions are, what our job should be, and instead focus on what we have to do based on what Hashem has put us in the world to do. Okay, thank you again to Shifi Jubas for sponsoring Le'ilin Nishmas, her husband and, uh, and mother.
Mirta Shemdin Rishama Shavaliyas.